tees into deep right field. Back is Sheffield. We'll see you later tonight on Remember That Guy, the sports podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. And I am still once again your host, James. Back from a one-week hiatus, I am your other co-host, Diaz. And let's swing it now to the best pinch hitter in the business, everybody's favorite guest host. Please take it away, sir. That's right. It's me, the very special guest, Xavier, once again joining for Remember That Guy. We're, we're, we're approaching Joe DiMaggio levels of streak with how hey. many times Xavier's filled our guest uh, host slot. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. People have 20-game hitting streaks every season or so. Look, there is nothing I would love more than for Xavier to break Joe DiMaggio's streak. And let it be known, I will make a big effing deal of it if we reach that. But it's the streak for a reason. We all know the number 56 for a reason. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I see 57 on the horizon. Slowly but surely. You're going to keep chopping wood. We're going to get there. Uh, and then it's just a matter of working to 2632. And that's somewhere down the line as well. But enough about my memories of Cal Ripken, the greatest shortstop of all time. Why don't you guys tell me about who's making memories for y'all right now? So I feel like the people were robbed of my Daryl Morey rant from our previous episode, the fact that I wasn't there. So while it is later, some would call it old news at this point, it's still at the forefront of my mind every second that I'm awake. It's that Daryl Morey pulled off the heist of the century and traded a person that doesn't want to play basketball, a guy on a minimum contract, and the best younger brother in basketball right now, maybe, I would say. That's, that's probably what you would say. <laughs> For James Harden, who is only a one-time MVP, I think should realistically be a three-time MVP, in full honesty. I'm, give, I'm giving the Westbrook triple-double season one to Harden. Um, Harden had a better season. I understand that I even at the time agreed with Westbrook because of the significance of there hasn't been a triple-double season in so long. Like, it's a similar thing to, like... When Miguel Cabrera won the Triple Crown, right? Like, he just had to be MVP. So I get it. But in hindsight, I think everybody has seen pretty clearly now that James Harden is a much better basketball player than Westbrook. Um, so I would give that one to him. And then I forget if it was the first or the second Steph Curry MVP. I think it was the first one. But I, I think that one would have belonged with Harden as well. The second one is the 73-9 and nine season. So that one, yeah, and that's where he's made 400 threes when nobody else had ever made 300. Like, that's that's pretty indisputable. But Daryl Morey did it. He did it while keeping all of our young core intact. We were pretty sure that we weren't going to give up Maxi. I was 50-50 if Tybal was going to have to be included. I was willing to include him if we needed to. But for Daryl to pull it off and to keep all of our guys, it's incredible. So I was listening to him on... Uh, on the rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. According to their models, pre-trade, the Sixers had about a 3% chance of winning the title. Their models now have them at 15%, which is virtually tied with the Nets, Bucks, Warriors, and Suns as basically the five teams that all have a real shot. Um, and it does feel that way. Big win on Thursday night to go into the All-Star break with some momentum. James Harden already contributing great vibes on the bench encouraging Tyrese Maxey and telling him thank you when he gets buckets like we all know he can. Um, <laughs> well, he was what I saw and really appreciate about James Harden's uh, influence on Tyrese Maxey was I saw him cheering when he was taking the fouls as he was shooting. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, to borrow an economic term, like there's externalities, right? You do your main analysis, but then there's things that get affected that you maybe not, didn't consider. And the ability of Harden to teach the other players on the team 
whether it's how to draw those fouls a little better, whether it's teaching Joel Embiid the step back three, which in two games he has apparently already added to his bag, which is absolutely one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. But yeah, it's we have we have a we have the current MVP favorite. We have a very recent former MVP. I I don't see any reason why if they stay healthy, knock on wood, because that's obviously the big concern with both of those guys. If they can stay healthy, why not? You know, why not? So thank you, Daryl Morey. You got it done. Held like a king. Can I say I would have folded like months ago? I would have said, yeah, give me the give me the Sacramento Kings poo-poo platter. Like I'll take it. Just get, <laughs> just get Ben out of here. But that's why I am a person that just talks on a podcast and says words and sends tweets. And Daryl Morey is a god. It's the difference between the two of us. So thank you, Daryl. I want to give you and all Philly fans credit. It has been great to see all of you say that very same thing that you said at the end. Like, Daryl Morey's very good at this because we would have gotten rid of Ben Simmons for almost nothing weeks ago if we could have. And it feels silly that it was able to happen, but I guess that's what happens when you just have two people that very badly don't want to be on the teams that they're on. It was the perfect alignment of the stars, right? Like, in a, in a literal sense here, like James Harden and Ben Simmons midseason it's so rare to see a big trade like this where it's two rivals making the trade as well right like you would think maybe separate yeah. conferences where hey if we see in the finals we see in the finals but like you know in all likelihood we will get a sixers nets playoff series at some point we will get ben simmons returning to philadelphia on march 10th and i have tickets to that game uh, <laughs> that i got ahead of time but it's gonna be a bloodbath it's going to be a bloodbath. I, I, I can't recommend enough. Um, I love listening to Spinsters, which is a podcast typically hosted by Jordan Liggins and Haley O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Haley O'Shaughnessy had her old friend from their former employer, John Gonzalez, on recently. And the two of them just talked about John Gonzalez is a big uh, Sixers fan. He's like, Ben could sit this game out. He could sit out like the playoff games. He could sit out 20 seasons worth. He could go to another team. And maybe in that last team, think, okay, you know what? This time I can set foot on Philly. And Philly fans would have waited 20 years to boo him at that point. He's like, no matter how long he puts it off for, when he finally takes that court, it'll be one of the most disrespectful audiences to ever see another basketball ball. It, it will be an unprecedented level of hatred. Like, if you took J.D. Drew refusing to sign his contract and going into the draft for another year... And you mix it with Terrell Owens immediately sabotaging the 2004 Super Bowl team. And you added in the arrogance of Scott Rowland thinking that, you know, he's above the team that he's on. You combine all three of those situations. I'll toss in another one, and it still doesn't make it. I'll toss in John Elway threatening to go play baseball instead of playing for the Baltimore Colts so he could get to Denver. You add that in, it still doesn't make how much people are going to hate him. No city holds a grudge like Philadelphia does, I think. All of us on this podcast can can fully understand and appreciate that. And the mental health thing it is a legitimate thing that he may not feel mentally ready to play in that March 10th game. But at some point, he is going to have to play a game in Philadelphia, one would assume. Like, especially if that playoff series happens, he's going to have to play. And it's just a ticking time bomb. The Frosties that Ben Simmons gifts to the greater Philadelphia region that night are going to be the most delicious I've ever had in my life. Um, I'm not even a big frosty guy at this point in my life. I've never redeemed the frosty freeze out. 
Uh, but I will. I will when when it's been given it to me. It, it'll it'll just feel too poetic. The last thing I'll say on that is imagine if he did try and hide it and you had a Sixers-Nets playoff series where Kyrie Irving couldn't play any home games and Ben Simmons couldn't play any away games. I, I mean, I would think that's hopefully done in four, I would think. But it would, yes, yeah, Ben because of uh, mental health issues and Kyrie because of uh, reasons, I guess. I still personal think it's just reasons? personal reasons. That's the, yeah. I think that's what they officially listed as when he does miss the home games, like personal reasons. It's like, yeah, that's that's uh, that's some good PC talk there. <laughs> well, well, hey, enough enough of the Sixers. Let's let's check in with our Knicks fan. How are you doing today, Xavier? Who's making memories for you? Not the, not the Knicks. Knicks. Yeah, not, not the, the Knicks. Knicks. Not the team that blew three twenty-point leads in a week and a half. So not not that team. We're so, moving on. We're moving on. I'm going to go across the pond, talk about Arsenal a bit, because the Arsenal game today made me very happy. Uh, Arsenal won 2-1 against Brentford. Should have won by more. Uh, they dominated the game, and Brentford scored their one goal in the last second of stoppage time, so it made no difference to the, the overall result. But Arsenal's two goals were by Academy graduates, uh, 21-year-old Emil Smith-Rowe and 20-year-old Bakayo Saka. The two of them have now combined for 16 goals across all competitions this season. Again, despite being 21 and 20, it has just been very fun to watch the two of them play. Smith Rowe is the first Arsenal Academy graduate to score 10 goals in a season since Cesc Fabregas in 2009-2010, which is wild because one, they're, they're only slightly over halfway through the season, and two, that was the first year I ever watched Arsenal. So it feels pretty wild to think, Know how long it's been since this has happened, but they're looking good. Hopefully, they can keep it going, get top four, go back to the Champions League for the first time in five years, and that would make me very happy. Your happiness would bring me nothing but happiness. Go, Gunners. I try every Saturday to gauge how they're doing based on your Twitter presence, and it was tough to tough to get a feel for it today. I'm not gonna lie. I'm glad that you're giving me the update because I couldn't quite until the end get a get a sense of how it was going. Weirdly enough, I think I tweeted more about the Manchester City Tottenham game. Because That's I was, the other thing. I do not know the difference in, in games when you are just talking about more than one. I, I was so focused on the Arsenal game that I did not, I don't think I tweeted much. But then watching the City Tottenham game where it was more of just, I want Tottenham to lose, but I don't care that much because if Arsenal takes care of business, it doesn't matter what Tottenham do. City did tie the game in the, in the last minute of regular time. And then Harry Kane did score in stoppage time to win it for Tottenham. So that led to a lot of angry tweets. But again, doesn't detract from the fact that Arsenal won and that made me happy. That's, that's the important point. That's what we focus on. What about you, James? For me, the person I would like to highlight in a, uh, as sort of the avatar of an unpleasant situation, the person that I think is standing out to me the most regarding it, is uh, Johnny Weir. Johnny Weir is a long-time Olympic ice skater for the United States and has been a commentator for probably about as many Olympics as he competed in at this point. Yeah, he's been uh, and, there for like 10 years, I think. Yeah, and he's, he's great. I, I think one of the best things about him, one of the, I think the most important things about any good commentator is uh, it makes me think of kind of what you said, Diaz, about Jeremy Bloom a couple episodes back. Where we were saying that to, to us, you know, all of this stuff seems so cool. It's hard sometimes to, to get a feel for it. And something that I think Johnny Weir does really, really well is 
convey exactly how impressed we should be and why we should be impressed by it. It does a great job of breaking down in, in pretty basic terms. Hey, this is the most incredible thing that this person's doing. Here is why that's so good. But another thing that is excellent is that Johnny Weir is fully fluent in Russian. Yes, I was hoping you were going to say this. Yeah, I mean, so there's been a lot of controversy for the last couple Olympics about the presence of Russian athletes, period. And there was an absolutely devastating outcome in uh, the solo events. And I honestly don't want to get too much because it's really sad to think about uh, these teenagers whose like lives are being ruined. It's really hard to pin any blame on them, really, because uh, they're kids. So regardless of what is and is not being done, like they're children and anything that we are upset about should be directed to the people that are ostensibly supposed to be in charge of their well-being. Anyway, the fact that we had all of this insight into it is because Johnny Weir just fucking out here making an MVP case as a commentator in real time translating what we are able to hear in this dice arena as to what's going on on the sidelines as skaters are having absolute meltdowns because of external pressure and there were some falls again they're teenagers like this is not me criticizing their meltdowns it's a highly tense situation and to have the kind of insight that we got just i thoroughly appreciate johnny weir for being able to make sure that we understand that and make sure that we understand how to properly feel about the people that that we should feel sympathy for in this situation i think he also did a great job on that note of being very sympathetic so yeah johnny weir fucking kicked ass doing doing some olympic commentary this week yeah, that was, and I, I, I i watched that real time in the morning and it, it was it was wild to see you know we don't have to get too much into it but valieva bawling her eyes out coach terry who was a, by all accounts a terrible person yelling at her instead of comforting her Trusova yelling and screaming while Johnny Weir translates it, everyone thinking that she's upset about how Valieva's being treated, but actually was just mad that she didn't win gold instead of and only got silver. Meanwhile, their teammate Trubakova, who did win, is sitting by herself, stone-faced, while all of the coaches are dealing with the bawling Valieva and the screaming Trusova and completely ignoring her. It was and, and she, absolutely and Johnny wild. Weir heard her apparently saying that she never wants to skate again. Again, not to get too into the granular aspects of a terrible moment for these people and what should not be a terrible moment and what should be like a highlight of their life. It sucks, but it's important that I, I think we, we all have that context, again, just to understand exactly what was going on. One line that killed me from, I think it was from the IOC, but was basically saying that if we didn't allow her to skate, it would cause irreparable damage. I don't know how you can see her bawling her eyes out and be like, this is a better outcome. Yeah, so real quick, that was Cass that, that did that. The IOC wanted her suspended, but the Court of Arbitration for Sport said that because she's a minor in a protected class, uh, and also because there were delays in getting the original drug test back from December in, they thought it would be better for her to skate, and then while they play out the court process... You know, then they could retroactively rescind anything because if two months from now they cleared her, but they didn't allow her to skate, and because she's a minor, you know, they that would have been the irreparable harm. So the cast was what said that she could skate. IOC didn't want it, and the IOC president Thomas Bach later remarked about how the tremendous coldness of the Russian coaches towards Valieva really shocked him, 
and you know how how it was clear that she needed some com- needed comfort and the coaches had no no patience for it and it was very sad but we should move on to something that's not as sad well this is this is why we have you on as a lawyer Xavier so when i talk out of my ass and say why things happened you're into Swiftly correct and make sure that the listeners know more than I do, which is not Cass. If you're listening, I, I'd want a job at Cass. I would love to go to to Geneva and live in Geneva as a court of arbitration for sport judge. That would be fantastic. And I'll just take a moment to say, hey, I was crediting Johnny Weir for making sure that we have all of the context to understand what's going on in the moment. And and Xavier, I thank you so much for helping to make sure that anyone listening to us also has the proper context for all of this. And speaking of proper context, before we go any further, you know discussing our our guys at the moment it'll be important to contextualize that with what exactly we decided to decide on them um and so for that i will go ahead and turn to our last successful litigant diaz you've alluded previously on this podcast you know some of us can have some split allegiances sometimes for myself personally and my fandom you know i'll root for usa in any game unless they're playing puerto rico in anything and then i'm gonna root for puerto rico so similarly, you know, we as fans, it's it, it can be a little easier to have these split allegiances. Nobody's checking us. You know, there's no there's no codes to uphold or processes to go through. We get to just root for whoever we want, um, which is one of the beautiful things of fandom. But for the athletes, if they want to have split allegiance, uh, this can sometimes come through some controversy and some difficulties. So our theme for this week is guys who have represented multiple countries on the national stage. Now, I know Xavier and James went with Olympic athletes, um, so we'll get to that. But I'm going to start in the world of international football, uh, a.k.a. soccer, as we know it in America, and to talk about a guy who is named by Pele as the greatest football player of all time, Named by 2008 FIFA, a UEFA president at the time, uh, Michelle Platini, as the most complete footballer in the history of the game. And a man that represented not one, not two, but three countries on the international stage. And that would be full name Alfredo Stefano Di Stefano Lalhe. Uh, but you all know him better as Alfredo Di Stefano. Yep. So yep. I do know this soccer player. Sorry, I do know this footballer. Yeah, footballer. I'm hip. Yeah, I'm hip. I'm hip to the lingo. Stefano. So uh, his nickname was uh, La Saeta Rubia, which is the blonde arrow, because he was just a quick jet out on the field. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, as just an all-around player, able to finish, able to dribble, able to pass, able to defend, just your classic um, jack-of-all-trades, except... You wouldn't say Jack in this case. You would say like Goat of all trades, I think, would be the more appropriate name for him. But so he was born uh, July 4th, 1926 in Argentina, just outside of Buenos Aires. And his early career, he begins in Argentina, um, plays for River Plate down there, which is the preeminent Argentinian soccer program. In his youth career, he gets called up and is an instant success um, in 66 appearances with River Plate. He has 49 goals. It's a pretty good ratio. It's an astonishing ratio. And just to get like my context on this, so he's relatively young doing this. Is this like a junior league or is he competing with like grown ass men? 
So this is, he came up through his youth career. He first started with uh, Union Progresista when he was 13. Uh, when he was 17, he then switched over to River Plate Juniors. And he made his debut at 19. So this <clears> is the age of 19 to 23. With his so, okay, so he is like a rookie phenom beating other professionals. Coming right into the scene. Coming right into the scene. Then he goes to a Colombian team by the name of Milonarios. I'm not sure if they quite paid him a million back then, but mm-hmm. I'm sure he was very well compensated for his move to Colombia. Plays 101 games there, scores 90 more goals. You know, just no big deal. New league, same shit. And then he ends up transferring over to Real Madrid, which is where he really establishes himself on the world stage and, you know, is able to establish as one of the best players of all time. So in 11 seasons with Real Madrid, he makes 282 appearances, racks up 216 goals. Just about... Wow! Wow! Anywhere you put this guy in the world, if you give him four games, he's going to score three goals. That ratio holds up across just about everywhere. That, that Real Madrid team was completely stacked. The other forward on that team was Ferenc Puskas, who is possibly the greatest striker in the history of soccer the best goal of the year is named after him the pushkas award so you're telling me that the guy we're talking about now is not even the best player on his team at that point he might be the best player but pushkas was the best goal scorer in 530 games for his entire club career scored 514 goals holy fuck so great team there and a great addition of our boy Alfredo Di Stefano. But this move did not happen without great controversy. Let's take you back in time. March 1952, Real Madrid has organized a friendly tournament in the Spanish capital, their new field, newly constructed field, and they're inviting teams from all over the world. So invited River Plate, who was, of course, Di Stefano's original team. But in 1952, he was no longer with River Plate. He was now with Milonarios. So River Plate is uninvited from the tournament on account of being too good, and Real Madrid doesn't want to be embarrassed in their own house. So they instead invite the best Colombian team at the time, Milonarios. So if not for this coincidence, perhaps Alfredo Di Stefano never arrives in Spain. But he goes over in the tournament. They draw 2-2 with the Swedish champions. They beat Real Madrid 4-2. And our Saeta Rubia gets a, a brace in that game with two goals. And this is in the presence of President Santiago Bernabeu. Obviously, if anybody pays attention to international soccer, that is the name of the stadium now. So this is, this is the godfather of uh, Real Madrid. So he's the president of the club. He came to watch a different player by the name of Adolfo Pedernera after seeing... Sayeta Rubia absolutely demolishes team. He has other ideas. So here's where it gets a little murky. And this is where, you know, Xavier, you as a lawyer, if you were on this case back in the day, <laughs> you would have you would have made a killing because there's a lot of stuff to go through here. So River Plate is FIFA associated at the time. They're officially recognized by the larger governing body as a legitimate league. The Colombian League at this time does not technically fall in this jurisdiction. So Milonarios, they are exempt, so to speak. So in terms of transfer rights, 
his rights actually still remain with River Plate. So Real Madrid tries to swoop in and get him. But Barcelona actually is a little swifter to the punch. So Barcelona, obviously Barcelona, Real Madrid, as long as Spanish soccer has existed, these have been the two giants. So Barcelona swoops in and makes an offer of $200,000 equivalent back then. I don't have an inflation calculator in front of me, but significant, I would say in the millions, right? Probably four, five, maybe. Definitely low millions, yeah. Low millions. So they try to swoop in and there's this major contract dispute now because Real Madrid's trying to say, hey, we saw him first. We wanted to do it first. And Barcelona's saying like, well, we filed the paperwork first. So this starts a legal battle. Di Stefano is just chilling in South America while all of this is going on. He actually is somewhat disillusioned by the whole thing. He returns to Buenos Aires and he begins making plans to retire from football and start his own business. Doing what? I don't know. It doesn't say, unfortunately. (laughs) But he wanted to become a businessman, go to the business factory, do a business. But we're able to get some resolution here. So the FIFA president, and this is crazy to think about, like trying to imagine this happening in like a modern day dispute. The FIFA appointed president, uh, Armando Munoz Calero, they appointed him as the mediator. And his solution was, okay, He's going to spend four seasons playing in Spanish. He'll spend the first season playing for Real Madrid. He'll spend the second season playing for Barcelona. He'll go back to Madrid for the third season. And then in the fourth season, he'll play for Barcelona again. So just ping pong back and forth. No big deal. Imagine if... If the Yankees and Red Sox had like a player just switching every season. Yeah, imagine, yeah, if it was, yeah, the way the Johnny Damon thing went down, they're just like, ah, why don't you guys just share them for the next four years? The opposite of the John Kevin Augustine situation with Leeds and Leipzig, where both said, no, we don't own him. No, no one does. No one owns him. He doesn't belong to anybody. Go away. Yeah, no, no instances of hot potato here. Everybody wants a piece. And Di Stefano debuts for Real Madrid as a somewhat underwhelming first few games. Barcelona, after these first few games, says, you know, we've seen enough. We're good. Never mind. So they sell their half share back to Real Madrid, and now he has a full four-year contract with Real Madrid, which is what allows him to then go on and become the dominant player that he is. So again, as we mentioned, in 11 years, 282 appearances, 216 goals, they are just dominating all of these European and domestic competitions throughout the time. So winning European Cups, winning La Liga, one of only three players to play a part in all five of their European Cup victories. He had a goal in each of the five finals. So when the chips are on the line, our boy's stepping up. He's got the clutch gene. <laughs> Which... This is an often disputed thing. Some people say it's just random statistics and, you know, how the way it falls, whether you make that one or not. I think if you've played sports on any level, that's, like, the biggest load of horse shit that you could ever have. Like, clutch absolutely exists. It's, it's there, uh, I know it when I see it. There are some guys who got it. I think most people are still random. I think the vast majority of athletes are still random, but there is, there is an, a, a skill that is performing under pressure. I would say even like, you know, it's not even necessarily great players. Like I would say like, I think Jimmy G has the clutch gene. He's a fucking average quarterback for 50 minutes of a game. But when the chips are on the line, 
I would take him as one of the top 10 quarterbacks I would take for a clutch drive, probably. I wouldn't take him as a top 20 quarterback in the league. But for that specific situation, I would. But Alfredo is no Jimmy G. He's more of more of the Tom Brady kind of mold. But, you know, we, we're talking about his domestic career. Um, just to cap it off, he did spend uh, two seasons after Real Madrid playing for Espanol, which, uh, believe it or not, folks, is a team in Spain. Um, <laughs> Could have fooled me. But this is this is more of his uh, Michael Jordan Wizards portion of the career. He's 38 by the time he gets to Espanol, plays 47 games across two seasons and 11 goals. So obviously not quite his heights, but I mean, similarly still, I mean, soccer is a sport where most guys are considered well past their prime by the time they're like 33, 34. And he's still playing top flight and able to knock in goals at 38, 39. Very impressive stuff. But we're here to talk about the international career, or at least that's the significance of why we brought him up. So international soccer, not as big of a thing back in this time, to the extent that Di Stefano, again, considered one of the all-time greats, the goat that everybody would consider, Pele, says that Di Stefano is his goat. He never played in a World Cup. Never played in the World Cup. Huh. And when you but, say that, just to clarify, are we saying he never played in a World Cup final? Or like, he never played in a World Cup, period? Period. Ne- never, never played huh. in a World Cup. Yeah, the, the emphasis still at the, back at this time was very much more on like club soccer. So he makes his debut for Argentina. Again, this, this is where the career begins. December 4th, 1947, in a match against Bolivia in the South American Championship, scores his first international goal, and Argentina goes on to win 7-0. Throughout the rest of this tournament, the the championship, he scores five more goals, and Argentina successfully defends their title. His, His six appearances in this tournament are his only appearances for Argentina because um, due to several issues, among them player strikes, there's a dispute with the Brazilian Football Confederation. Argentina withdraws from the 1950 World Cup, which is to be played in Brazil. So this is World Cup number one that Di Stefano does not get to play in. After representing Argentina, when he went to go for play for Millonarios, he never held a Colombian passport. I should mention this, but back in the late 40s, early 50s, the rules are a lot more loose, let's say. There's a lot less people checking in on things. Like, ah, yeah, he lives in Colombia. He must be a Colombian. So Alfredo Di Stefano does make appearances for Colombia in friendly matches. So never in official competitions. Maybe if they were official competitions, we'd have been looking a little harder at him. These games do not even officially appear in FIFA's records, but he is still credited as having been an international player for Colombia. It's a good now, technicality on just people not paying attention. We love it. Yeah, just just slide on by, right? I've always, I've wondered that too with like when you have like brothers, like let's say like, you know, your Canucks. If Danielle and Henrique decided that they were going to wear each other's uniforms for a game. They, who, they who, claim that they have a couple times. Exactly. And like, and who's going to notice that? If, if you can notice that, more power to you. But uh, as part of this, um, you know, massive dispute when he ended up transferring to Real Madrid, he was actually banned from playing in Argentina. His own home country did not cry for him because they said, get the fuck out of here, dude, if you want to go play for Spain. So he, he's now, he's now uh, a man with no home except Spain is more than happy to allow their newly welcomed goat to acquire Spanish citizenship and to play 
for their international team. So this is all sorted in uh, late 1956. So he was not eligible for a World Cup at this point, but it comes up to the 1958 World Cup. They are favorites to qualify because their qualification group is just Scotland and uh, Switzerland, who are you know, very, very uh, low tier, let's say, at this point in international soccer. And this is a Spanish team that has basically, it's basically the La Liga all-star team. It's the best players on Barcelona and Real Madrid. So they're not only favorites to qualify for this. Fun fact, one of the other Real Madrid stars at the time, his name was Luis Suarez. No relation. But so they were favored. They start off with a 2-2 draw against Switzerland. Then they lose to Scotland 4-2. They win both of their home games 4-1. But the way it ends up going, goal differential, they just don't have the points. So Di Stefano, in his age 33 season, so we're getting towards the end of his prime, it does not qualify. He has two goals across the four games, but unable to get through. In 1961, in qualifying for the 1962 World Cup, he is finally successful. He, he uh, plays th- for Spain through qualification, and they qualify for the 1962 World Cup, which is played in Chile. However, as we mentioned, never got to represent any country on the World Cup stage. He suffers a muscle injury just before the competition begins, does travel with the team in hopes that if he's able to rehab in time, he might be able to make it back. Unfortunately, this ends up just being a glorified rehab stint. They don't make it out of the group stage. It was one of those, hey, if they make it out, if they advance, maybe he's going to have a chance. Unfortunately, he does not. And in their last game, actually, they are beaten by Brazil and Pele. So after that, that was enough. And he decided to retire from the international stage, although he did still continue to play in the domestic league for a little bit. Um, So, I mean, that caps his football playing career. But there is one other tidbit that is interesting, worthy of note. Please tell. Yeah. Um, the, The kidnapping in Caracas, of course, we all remember this. So, on the night of August 24th, 1963, there is a Venezuelan revolutionary group, the Armed Forces of National Liberation. They kidnap him at gunpoint in his hotel while he's in the hotel with Real Madrid. They're on a preseason tour of South America. This was codenamed Julian Grimal after Spanish communist Julian Grimal Garcia. Uh, who was executed by a firing squad in Spain during Francisco Franco's dictatorship. So basically, these guys are too fond of of uh, that. You could say that Julian Grimau could have been the Franz Ferdinand of this potentially international incident. But thankfully, he is released two days later with no ransom being paid and no harm done to him. Di Stefano stresses that his kidnappers were actually very nice to him. I don't know what they did. None of us are going to know. At the end of the day, the only people that know are the people that kidnapped him and Di Stefano. But uh, gets released from being kidnapped at gunpoint. And the very next day, he plays a game against Sao Paulo and gets a standing ovation from the crowd. So just, all right, I didn't get murdered. Let's go play. I think he just talked the guys in by saying, like, hey, I got a game tomorrow. I'll score one for you. Like, tell me what you want. I'll get, I'll get you front row seats. Exactly. I'll come back. I'll come back after the game. Wink, wink. Dinner at seven. I'll bring the wine. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they made a movie about this called Real La Pelicula, which was released in 2005. 
So as part of uh, publicizing the, the movie that was made, the kidnapper, who is known, his name is Paul Del Rio. He's uh, now a, a famous artist in Spain. Yeah, of course that's what's going on now. And, you know, as a publicity stunt to promote the movie, they were reunited for the first time since the abduction <laughs> 42 years later, and they did, like, a press conference together. You get that letter, and you have to immediately be in your head to get, all right, what's the statute of limitations? Is this a sting operation? Am I just walking into a trap? It could, it could have been, like, the dumbest walking into an arrest of all time. I'm shocked that, like, his associates let him do that. Because if I was his friend, look, I don't care what they say. They found some kind of loophole to get you for this when you get there. You can't possibly trust that this is going to go well. Yeah, the, the gun you used to hold him at gunpoint wasn't registered, and those don't, uh, those don't apply to uh, statute of limitations, something like that. But, yeah, so Alfredo Di Stefano, one of the greatest players of all time. Incredible club career disappointing international career maybe if he would have stayed with one country it could have been a little better i don't know maybe some loyalty who knows not my place to say but all i know is one of the all-time great soccer players and a worldly man alfredo di stefano so that is uh that is my guy but you know as we are still in the olympics i i'm I'm very curious to to hear who either of you came up with real quick i do want to uh say Loved hearing about the Stefano. I absolutely love hearing about fifties and sixties soccer because it was such a, a like a, a different time. That sixty two World Cup that the Stefano uh, unfortunately missed. Might have been lucky to miss it because it's considered one of the worst ever, where players were just literally beating the crap out of each other. There was a game between Italy and Chile called the Battle of Santiago where. Police had to come onto the onto the pitch four times because players just kept punching each other in the face, breaking noses, and not getting sent off or punching each other in the face. Also, Real Madrid's uh, training stadium is the Alfredo Di Stefano Stadium, and Christian Pulisic scored a goal in the Champions League semifinals against Real Madrid in that stadium when they had to use it when the Bernabeu was being renovated. Oh yeah, Captain America. It is, it is great to see how so many um, U.S. domestic players are stepping up on actual, like, European clubs now. Like, it was such a big thing when Landon Donovan played for, like, Everton, which is, like, mid-table English team. Um, now we've come all this way. It's very fun. Hopefully we can still qualify for the World Cup, though, because until that is official, I will not feel good about it. But enough about soccer. Let's move on to a different game, and let's talk about some basketball. Specifically... Women's basketball. I think I know what you're gonna do. We'll see. You might. There, uh, there. There's more than you would think for naturalized citizens for basketball team. There, there are hundreds of them, both men and women. So, so we'll we'll see. But do you remember Lindsey Harding? I do remember Lindsey Harding. This is not Becky Hammond, who is who I thought I was hoping I you might do. No, I, I wasn't. I thought Becky Hammond it's was too obvious. True. And I feel like I just, again, we've, we've talked about this. It's the, there is a certain amount where, like, we can't call a star a guy. So to you, Becky Hammond, I apologize for implying anything less than star status or silver star status, Bazinga. To, to be fair, we did just talk about one of the best soccer players of all time, but also foreign soccer player from an era where Americans definitely would not have paid attention. So I think that also, makes more sense. His international career sucked. <laughs> it, it was a very, very mediocre. His international career sucked. Fair enough, fair enough. But uh, there are a lot of similarities between Becky Hammond and Lindsey Harding, but let's, let's just get into it. So Lindsey Harding, uh, born June 12, 1984 in Mobile, Alabama. 
Uh, she grew up in Houston and starred as a point guard at Cy Fair High School before signing with Duke University. Freshman year, she makes the ACC All-Freshman team, uh, averages 4.6 boards, 3 assists, 2 steals. She's known mostly as the hard-nosed defender. She improves on these numbers her sophomore season for having to redshirt her junior year uh, due to an unspecified violation of team rules. It's never come out what happened, but she has to sit out her entire junior year. She does come back, though, and she plays two, two more seasons, a redshirt junior year and a redshirt senior, senior year. During her redshirt senior year, which was 2006-2007, she is fantastic. She leads Duke to an undefeated 29-0 regular season. She averages 14 points, four boards, four assists, two steals per game. She's named the ACC Player of the Year, the Naismith College Player of the Year, the WBCA Defensive Player of the Year, Nancy Lieberman Award for Point Guard of the Year, and the Francis Pomeroy Naismith Award for Shorter Than Average Players Who Excelled Despite Their Height which is a real award wait, that wait. existed for 40 years. 40 years? Yes, it doesn't. It no longer exists. The last time it was given out was 2014, but it existed for 40 years. It's kind of bullshit that we quit after that long. Like, now we can't give the little guys an award anymore? The last winners of this award were Russ Smith uh, for the men and Odyssey Sims on, on the women's side. But back to Lindsay Harding. She's 5'8", so but still tall for regular people, but short for basketball and so fantastic season for her unfortunately 2007 postseason less kind uh, in the acc semifinals top ranked duke gets upset by four seed nc state 70 to 65 despite that they're still 30 and one and they enter the ncaa tournament as a number one seed uh they crush holy cross and they beat temple and then in the sweet 16 they come up against rutgers duke is le- is leading for almost all of this game in the second half, they held the lead for 19 and a half minutes until Epiphany Prince hits a basket to give Rutgers a one-point lead with 20 seconds left. On the next possession, Duke turns it over, commits a foul, but they had one to give. So on the inbound, Lindsey Harding steals the pass and goes up uh, to try to win the game. She gets fouled with 0.1 seconds left and has to get and goes to the free throw line. Harding's a career 74% free throw shooter. Unfortunately. Similar to our old friend Nick Anderson, she does miss both free throws. Damn, you're gonna do this to me two weeks in a row, X? You're gonna I you're gonna break my heart with these people two weeks in a row? Anytime that you list the percentage uh, when you're telling these stories, it's like when the graphic shows up for a field goal kicker, like has made his last 18 attempts inside of 35 yards, and you're like, oh, you're definitely gonna fucking miss this one now. Here's a question for you. In basketball, like there, there comes a point then on the lower end where you're jinxing it to happen. What's, what's the boundary? I would say like right at about 70. Like 70 and up, you're like, I feel like I have a coin flip that they're going to make both and I'm very confident they're going to make at least one. Anything below 70, I'm like, I'm edging my seat for both of them. I'm like, yeah, anything in the 60s, got to be a little suspicious. At least I she think didn't they're... miss four, but she still did miss the two that she had, and Duke does yeah, lose she's... the game. I mean, wait, why are we sad also about Duke losing a game? We need to get, see the forest for the trees here. To be fair, Duke women's basketball is much different than Duke men's basketball. But So Duke's season ends. You know, she does get somewhat of a, a happy ending where next year she becomes only the second Duke women's basketball player to have her jersey retired after Alana Beard. Uh, so she goes into the 2007 WNBA draft, 
and she's picked number one overall by the Phoenix Mercury and immediately traded to the Minnesota Lakes. Uh, she has great start to her rookie season, leads rookies in scoring, but she injures her knee halfway through the season and misses the entire second half of the year. Still makes the all-rookie team, but not, it's not great. She then gets traded to the Washington Mystics, uh, where she has a career year. 2010, she's fantastic. She would have been an all-star. She was technically a fake all-star because the WNBA some years just doesn't have all-star games. Whenever the Summer Olympics happen, they don't have an all-star game. They have a I... like the U.S. team versus WNBA select team. But this year wasn't an Olympics year. They just decided to do a showcase anyway that was called uh, Stars at the Sun at the Mohegan Sun Arena in Connecticut, where they had the USA basketball team just face a random uh, selection of WNBA players. And Lindsey Harding is the starting point guard on that WNBA team. But because it isn't officially considered an all-star game, she does not ever actually make an all-star team. But she's doing, she, she's doing well enough that she's kind of on the radar of the, of the USA team at this point. I- I mean, I just need to say, like, Stars at the Mohegan sounds like something that would be done at a casino at, like, 2 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon. And it's just, like, a bunch of people from the 50s that were in B-list movies from the 50s. It's like, oh, it's Stars. Like, you're, you remember you remember Johnny Slapshot, right? Like, oh, what a guy. Like, we can come up with a better name for this actual impressive game with people that are at the forefront of the women's game. Stars at the Mohegan, um, that's, that's not jumping out to me. Yeah, you've got a bunch of the best players ever, and we're going to make it sound like an off-Broadway review. <laughs> it, it's interesting because, like, honestly, looking at the teams, the WNBA team seems more balanced, but that's really just because Gino Ariema hates guards for the most part. Gino Ariema never, never carries more than three guards at a time. He, he's almost all forwards and wanting, like, positional flexibility, and that will, that's going to be very important later. Because after this 2010 season where she has a career year, she makes the shortlist for the USA women's team for the FIBA World Championships in the Czech Republic. Unfortunately, she ends up being cut from the final squad because Gino Ariema decided to only take two point guards, Sue Bird and Lindsey Whalen. Gino Ariema, his standard thing I've, I've learned from this is if he has 12, 11 or 12, it's three guards, two centers, and the rest are forwards. He, he ends up carrying seven to eight forwards for every tournament. That, that, is, that is what he wants. So Harding does not make th- this, this team. USA wins anyway because, you know, they're USA women's basketball, and that, that's what happens. But she doesn't let her disappointment get, get to her. But she gets traded again to the Atlanta Dream in, in the spring of 2011. Has another strong season, and she leads the Dream to the finals, facing her old team, the Minnesota Lynx. Fortunately, they do lose to the Lynx, but her strong play continues into 2012, and she gets an invite to the USA camp for the Summer Olympics, where she makes the list of 21 finalists. Unfortunately, Ariema again decides to only take three guards total. Lindsey Whalen and Sue Bird, who are the only listed guards on the entire team, and then Diana Taurasi, who they had played playing as a hybrid 2-3. But only two actual guards and one listed guard who is not really a guard. So Gino has has what he likes, and there's no room for anyone else. And then after this, Harding's career starts to waver a bit. 
She plays two seasons with the Sparks or getting waived in February of 2015. Now at this point, she's playing more in Europe than in America. Uh, she's played one year in Lithuania and five years in Turkey, as unfortunately many WNBA players have to do because of low salaries, making it so they have to play year-round. But that's a different discussion. So at 30 years old, with few WNBA prospects, no one's, no one's call, knocking on her door right now and dwindling hope of ever representing the U.S., Harding gets a call, and it's from Belarus. Sure. Yeah, okay. So Belarus has a problem. Uh, They just finished 10th out of 16 teams at the 2014 FIBA World Championships, and they're worried about their prospects of making the Olympics. The biggest issue is they have no point guards. Their starter got hurt in the first game of of the FIBA World Championships, and they had no one to replace her. And they realized they really need someone to help out. So they... Call Harding and ask her if she'd be interested in representing them. At this point, she's in Europe, and she's like, you know what? Fine. She gets a passport, becomes a naturalized Belarusian citizen. I I just want to clarify. There's no, like, oh, like, the great-grandfather, the great-great-grandmother. No, no. This is Belarusian. This is is purely the Belarus picked someone and said, hey, do you want to become Belarusian just for basketball? This Dude, is they just text her like, hey, what you doing? You up? <laughs> Trying to come through Belarus and ball for a bit? She had never played in Belarus. Like, no familial connection to Belarus. This is just Belarus essentially like headhunting someone and saying, hey, we want you to play for us. Will you do it? So, it's nice to feel wanted. And, you know, I'm sure that's what, how Lindsay Harding felt too because she gets her Belarusian passport just in time for the 2015 Women's Euro Basket Tournament, which was June... Of 2015, and it was in Hungary and Romania. So Belarus tops Group B. They go undefeated against Turkey, Greece, Italy, and Poland. Uh, they then move on to the second group stage, where they finish third behind Turkey and France, but ahead of Montenegro, Greece, and the Czech Republic, and that qualifies them for the final round. Belarus beats Lithuania in the quarterfinals, 68-66, before losing to the eventual champion Serbia in the semis, 74-72. But by nature of their finish in the top five, they qualified for the Olympic qualifying tournament as one of uh, the European representatives. So essentially, being in the semis guaranteed them a place. Uh, an extra spot was given to the fifth place finisher because France was hosting the Olympic qualifying tournament. So they already had a spot in that. And Serbia, as the winner, automatically qualifies for the Olympics. So the next year, June of 2016, Harding has just finally returned to the WNBA after a year and a half of not being in the not being there. Uh, she signs for the Liberty in April. Uh, unfortunately, she only plays five games for them. And then when she goes away to the Olympic qualifying tournament in France, they do officially waive her while she is away in another country. That's it's like not changing great. the locks. Like, come on, can we be adults here? <laughs> but so there's 12 teams at this qualifying tournament. There's four from Europe, three from the Americas, two from Africa, two from Asia, and New Zealand. Five of the 12 qualify for the Olympics. So Belarus is put in Group C with Nigeria and South Korea. Uh, they beat Nigeria 71-60, to 60, with Harding chipping in 11 points, three assists, and two steals. They then lose to South Korea 66-65. Uh, Harding had 13 points and seven assists in that game. All three teams finished 1-1 one one as Nigeria beat South Korea by one point. Fortunately for Belarus, 
They topped the group on point difference, having a plus 10 because of the win over Nigeria to South Korea's zero and Nigeria's minus 10. So they make the knockout stages. And because of the nature of this tournament, it's kind of weird how it's set up. In the quarterfinals, whichever team wins qualifies, and their tournament is over. Whichever team loses then goes on to the semifinals where they have to try to win the tournament for the fifth, for the okay. fifth spot. I like that. I actually really think that's like a cool qualifying tournament setup. So you basically just start the losers bracket immediately. Yeah, yeah it, 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 it was actually really cool. I, I did like that. But so Belarus loses to China in the quarterfinals, uh, 84-70, despite Harding putting up her best game of the tournament, uh, 22 points, six assists. And then in the still same bracket, but consolation bracket at this point, they play Argentina in the semifinals. And they blow them out. It's 84-44. It's not even, it's not even a game. Uh, they, Belarus empties the bench very early. Uh, Harding barely plays. But they're able to rest up, essentially, for the fifth place uh, championship, uh, which is a rematch against South Korea. Maybe due to their, their rested legs, Belarus does take care of business pretty easily, winning 56-39 with Harding as the leading scorer with 17 points. It took until the last minute, but Belarus officially became the last team to qualify for the summer, for the summer Olympic tournament just a month and a half before it starts. Over the five games, Harding averages 14 points and four assists, and she also becomes the first former Duke women's player to qualify for the Olympics. Really? Five, yeah. No one else. No one Not everyone. Wow. Yeah. And so five days later... Harding gets signed by the Phoenix Mercury to back up Diana Taurasi. All the way back to where it started. Love the uh, circle. She plays a couple games to stay fit uh, before flying down to Rio to join the Belarusian team at the end of July. So here we are at the Olympics. Belarus plays Japan in their first game. And unfortunately, they blow a late lead to lose 77-73, despite 12 points, 8 boards, and 5 assists from Harding. Next day, they play France, and they're trailing 71-70 with 11 seconds left. Harding has the ball. Harding gets fouled. She steps up to the free throw line. She calmly sinks both free throws to take the lead, 72-71. Unfortunately, after a mad scramble in multiple offensive rebounds, France tips one in at the buzzer to win 73-72. I'm so mad at you right now, Xavier. <laughs> I'm so upset that you just made me think we were about to have this, like, stupidly Disney moment ending to this and just rips the rug out from underneath me. Xavier, I've... your unfortunately hit, like, <laughs> daggers. Because I know, like, every time it's, like, ugh, it's very deflating. There's a couple more unfortunately's in here. I, 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 oh, no. I'm sorry to say. The third game, uh, they have the host Brazil next. This time, they're the, one, they're the ones who are breaking hearts as they hit a three-pointer to win it in the last minute. Hang on, 65-63. Next up is Turkey, and this is a must-win game. Lindsey Harding scores two late baskets to make it a one-score game, 72-71, Turkey in the lead. Uh, Belarus has a chance to take the lead, misses a shot with 10 seconds left, and they have to foul. And Turkey hits both free throws. Ball coming up to court, needing a three to tie it. Lindsay Harding gets a shot off. She misses. And Belarus loses 74-71. The 
Unfortunately, Belarus has played four games and gone one and three and lost by four, one, and three. This has been a very tough tournament for Belarus. They get one more shot. They're already eliminated at this point, but they have one group stage game left. Uh, and this is against Australia, who have won the group uh, and are going to be going, th- going through. And they give them a game. They're up in the fourth quarter again for going completely cold and getting outscored by 15 in the fourth quarter to lose 74-66. Uh, LaRouche was led by Harding 16 points, but they do bow out of the Olympics after going one and four. She does finish third in the Olympics for, with averaging five assists per game uh, while putting in 14 points. Technically, she averaged 13.8 points per game in both the five-game qualifying tournament and the five games at the Olympics. So that's 69 points? 13.8 times five. Nice. We, we get that organic is- immaturity now. <laughs> When was the last time I saw Diaz do math and then just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just hears those two numbers and is able to put that together? Listen, there's one thing that's at the forefront of my mind at all times. It's a tie between 69 and 420. If I can ever see one of those numbers and I can make a stupid joke about them, best believe I'm going to jump on it. So Lindsay Harding and Belarus do bow out. She did, fi- she did get to live out her Olympic dream. Uh, and despite, you know, giving it her all, unfortunately, they do finish, uh, you know, ninth uh, in, the Olymp- in the Olympics. She plays one more season over in Turkey with Besiktas before retiring. But she's had a very successful second career that I think it's important to talk about. In 2018, she becomes the first black woman to become a full-time NBA scout uh, when the Sixers hired her. And then she became the Sixers' first female assistant coach when she promoted to the player development coach position right before the playoffs. TTP. She was then hired by the Kings as an assistant coach for player development, and she's held that position for the last three years. You know, she's following a, a similar career path to one Becky Hammond. Uh, sorry, future WNBA championship winning coach Becky Hammond? Possibly. I mean, there has, there's been talk about Lindsey Harding as as a head coach you know she still ha- like has you know a little bit to move up the ladder but from all reports she's been fantastic uh in, in sacramento and she actually gets a, a a second side job where she was named the coach of the new south sudan uh women's basketball team and put together their first ever women's team and coached them in their first ever competitive game in the 2021 women's afro basket qualifiers once again, refusing to let Borders hem her in. And a, a, a little bit of a fun fact here. Does anyone know the president of the South Sudan Basketball Federation who hired Lindsey Harding? I'll give a hint. Also a professional basketball player who played a lot in the NBA. Uh, Serge Ibaka? I believe Serge Ibaka is Congolese. This I mean, person... Lindsey Harding's American and she played for Belarus. Like, come on, Zay. <laughs> yo, yo, that, that's times. fair. That, that, that's fair. Um... No, th- this person played for uh, the the British national team. Aluwaldang. Yes, Aluwaldang is the president of the South Sudan uh, Basketball Federation. You're joking. I am not. Love it. Yeah, so you know that that's that's the Lindsay Hart the Lindsay Harding story. Couldn't quite get over the Sue Bird and Lindsay Whalen USA hump, but is able to lead Belarus to the Olympics, and now gets to create an entire new national team you know from scratch, which. Sounds really fun and also really stressful. 
Great. This her her legend is still growing. We have a chance to like get in on the ground floor here and get some like you know, still relatively buy low, I think, Lindsay Harding stock, if we want to try and uh, hodl our way to Bitcoin success. I don't know stocks. I don't know. It's all right. Just, stocks. Number, just remember, number go remember up. this. Diamond remember hands. This when, she's, uh, when she's the, the, the head coach of the Sacramento Kings. Oh, God, man, don't wish evil on her like that. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay deserves better than that. Make her bring back the Sacramento Monarchs. She sounds like she's got the connections. She's she's the Sacramento Mon Sacramento Monarchs won Sacramento a championship. Kings ain't done fucking that. Fair enough. Here's what I here's what I would compromise. Let's send the Kings to Seattle so Seattle gets a team again, and then Lindsay can be the first coach of the resurrected Seattle SuperSonics. I think the one thing that feels tough about that is that the city of Sacramento has no other professional sports team it feels wrong to take that's the fair. only team from a city that's fair we could ship the clippers up they go exactly like it's it's insane that it hasn't happened and it's never going to now because they're making their stadium but it's crazy that steve ballmer the fucking ceo of microsoft didn't move the clippers to seattle it was sitting right in front of them could have teamed up with starbucks made it a whole thing <laughs> I'd, starbucks arena would not even be close to the stupidest name it, smoothie king arena exists like starbucks arena sounds fine What's worse, Smoothie King or Little Caesars? Real quick, I need. I feel like we need to to settle this once and for all. What's the worst arena name? Is it Smoothie King or Little Caesars? It's Crypto.com Arena for seven hundred oh, million dollars. That's true. That's true. It is now Crypto.com Arena. Well, I guess there they go. They settled the age old debate. I will say that uh, you know the Crypto.com Arena probably has the biggest inverse ratio in terms of its actual name to its nickname because the crypt is a dope name for an arena i love the crypt but when you say the full name it's like uh i can't think of anything else that even comes close this is just call it the crypt can we can we resolve as a podcast to just call it the crypt from now on no because the lakers decided to do this and i'm a spurs fan and i'm gonna remind lakers fans for the rest of however long it's relevant they named their arena fucking crypto.com i refuse to ever say the cool version of that I'm just going to stick with I, Staples Center because screw crypto and spending a crypto company spending $700 million on the naming rights to something that people have already associated so heavily with something else. So I want them to just waste that money because it's all well, fake money anyway. So it's still the Staples Center. Yeah, we well, need to forget about cryptocurrency and remember the thing that really matters, which is office supply stores. What I'll say, <laughs> I, I thought it was hilarious when that was happening the lakers fans on social media were posting like loving tributes like man all these memories that happened here can't believe it's time to say goodbye i was like it's literally the same brick and mortar they're just changing what the name is oh i'm sorry we're lakers fans being overly dramatic this is i've i've, I've seen um Aisley on uh on twitter she's a great nba follow but she was trying to say something once about like can you imagine having the tortured existence that we have as a Lakers fan and tried to recount like, Oh, like the Steve Nash season, like, Oh, like it's, we're under 500 in this one season, even though we won a championship two years ago. Like if you see me complain about the San Antonio Spurs for like the first decade after Greg Popovich slapped me across the face. Well, it's like, they that's won why five championships in 20 years. Like there's nothing to complain about. That's why as much as I hate Boston sports, I do have to give them their credit that they're assholes about how good they are, but they don't ever try to do the woe is me shit. 
So I got to give them respect for that. Okay, one but. last thing I want to say about the Lakers before I move on. It's the stupidest thing in the world. So there's an upcoming HBO show that's about the Lakers, about the Showtime Lakers. And HBO, a premium cable network, was going to call this Showtime, which is also the name of another premium cable network. And they've had to not use that. Like, they can't use that name anymore because, of course, they can't. Why would you ever think that Showtime's going to let anything on your TV be called that? And so now that it's not Showtime, they're going to call it Winning Time because that was their best backup plan. That was the backup plan that they had just in case a major rival in their media field had a problem with a new product of theirs having the exact same name. Winning Time is so basic too. Like what? Like what were the other ideas? They're like, okay, guys, we could do Winning Time. We can do Basketball Time. We can do Dribble Time. The Lake Show. The Lake Show. Lake Show. Name it, Magic, name it after magic. Name it after Doctor Bus. Oh, there's a, so many things. There's so many less stupid things than winning time. But again, the, the Lakers remain an incredibly stupid thing. Magic of dual bus. Even that, honestly, I would enjoy more than winning time. <laughs> but you know what I really enjoy is the career of my next guy. You both picked. I'd say people that had a little bit more. Notoriety. Uh, I admit we're we're going a little obscure here, but it's the Olympics. The Olympics are a time of obscurity, and it's a time to highlight those obscure stories. That's the best part about the Olympics. It's when you are watching it at 3 p.m. and they are telling you the life story of someone that's not going to advance out of the second heats that day, and that's kind of the sweet spot of the the individual I've brought to you both today. Have you ever happened to hear the name Sarah Schlepper? Can't say, Can't I say I that I have. Thanks. She had an undistinguished but still perfectly productive and long U.S. career. There's a couple guys who had a a big hand in Sarah Schlepper's life. Uh, First major guy is her dad, Buzz Schlepper. Buzz Schlepper is exactly the kind of person that you picture when you hear the name Buzz Schlepper. He is a Colorado native, and uh, basically, he's just a big old ski bum. And uh, in Colorado, Aspen, I feel like, is probably the most well-known in the, the collective conscious skiing thing there. Uh, but there's another really big place in Colorado, there's Vail, Colorado, which is a little bit more recently built than Aspen. It was kind of set up in 1962. And Buzz Schlepper is there, that very first year skiing it. And it's uh, it's much higher elevation. So you're talking 8,180 feet up from uh, sea level at its max elevation. And so this is much more of a like hardcore ski thing than Aspen. Aspen's like the, oh, take your family and go for the ski resort. And Buzz Schlepper, he does veil that first year in 1962, goes to Aspen for a little bit, but eventually he's like, yeah, this is not the ski bomb lifestyle I'm looking for. These people are not committed to the ski life vibes. And so he goes back to Vail, works for a ski shop for a couple years, and then is able to get a loan from his parents in the late 60s, and just start a ski shop that, of course, becomes like a cultural institution then. So Buzz Schlepper becomes this major force by 1979 in Vail, Colorado, and that is also the year that he has his daughter. His daughter, Sarah Schlepper, is born technically a little bit outside of Vail, Colorado in Greenwood Springs, but is essentially a Vail, Colorado native. And so she is skiing from the moment she can stand. Now, this Vail is a big hotbed of ski talent. So she is very often not the best person around. That's This is a very competitive thing. Like imagine back when baseball in Las Vegas 
Chris Bryant's hot shit until Bryce Harper comes along. Like, there's just so much talent sometimes in those areas that even someone that's going to go on to make several Olympic appearances is not the best skier at any time. But with that being said, Sarah Schlepper is able to very quickly at least get enough national recognition that she does start making the Olympics. Her first Olympics is in 1998, 2002, she appears again for the U.S., 2006, and 2010. She's got four different U.S. Olympic appearances. Admittedly, in the Olympics, she never places higher than 10th. Uh, she does that in the slalom in 2006 in Turin, at the age of 27. But she's gone a full four years. Outside of this, she's competing in World Cup races, uh, a total of 186 over her full 19-year career. Wins one. Uh, she wins one I'm ever in 2005 in held Switzerland. But after all of this, she's finally ready to hang it up. Uh, she started a family with her husband. Uh, it's, it's, I may be mispronouncing it. I'm always a little unsure about how exactly to do the X uh, in it. Mexican gentleman, Federico Gashida. Gashida is, I believe, how this is going to be pronounced with that X. So 2007 and 2008, she starts her family with Federico Gashida. Announces her retirement a couple years later. Now, here's the thing. Apparently, this is a tradition in uh, alpine skiing. When you announce your retirement, you normally do it before a race. Like you say, this is going to be my last race. And traditionally, you are allowed to wear whatever you want for your last race. This is a thing. And so uh, this is cool. Yeah, kind of. And and Sarah Schlepper actually kind of makes waves with her retirement because what she does for her very last race is she just puts on a brown sundress, uh, but like you no listen. leggings, no undershirt, just out in the cold, skating in a sundress. Halfway through the race, she stops Federico, hands her their kid, and then she skis the rest of the way with the child in their arms. <laughs> um, so That seems a little dangerous. But, oh, it, you know. I like, I'm glad that you picked up on that also, because as I was reading this, everyone was like, oh, and she got huge applause and a bouquet of roses. I was a little concerned for the safety of the child, but nothing happens, luckily. Instead, she finishes very far back in the pack because she was not going fast, at least, with her son. Lindsey Vaughn is there, a longtime teammate and another person from the Vail, Colorado area. You know, one of those people that might have overshadowed her a little bit in her career. She's there to, to hug her and, and celebrate what a great career it's been. And, and there we go. That's the international career of Sarah Schlepper, and she hangs it up. Except, of course, she's not yet eligible for what we're talking about. In 2018, she returns to the Olympics. That year, there are actually four people from the Vail, Colorado area that are in the Olympics. You've got Lindsey Vaughn, Michaela Schifrin, and someone by the name of Alice McKinnon, and they are all representing the United States. And Sarah Schlepper is also in this Olympics representing the nation of Mexico. To talk about Mexican <laughs> skiing, to talk about Mexican skiing, there's one central figure. Uh, that is Prince Hubertus Rudolf Zuhonlo Langenberg, a.k.a. Andy Himalaya, a.k.a. Royal Disaster. Those are the names uh, that he often adopts for his recording career. This is a German prince who was born in Mexico and was uh, raised in Mexico for the first four years. But at the age of four, he goes to where German princes live in like Germany and Austria and is a, is a good skier, but is not good enough to compete on those teams. He loves skiing, though, and something that he particularly loves about both skiing and the Winter Olympics as a whole is, as he calls them, exotic athletes. The athletes from the countries that do not necessarily have long winter sport traditions. So he goes to Mexico. He says, I would like to start the Mexican Ski Federation. 
Are you guys down? In 1981, he does this. They start the Mexican Ski Federation. And he basically spends the next three years doing kind of what we've talked about in some recent episodes where you just have to stack up enough wins in ranked competitions. And so he makes an appearance at the Winter Olympics in 1984. And then he makes an appearance at the Winter Olympics in 1988. And then he makes an appearance in the Winter Olympics in 1992. And then he makes an appearance in the Winter Olympics in 1994. They do take a year off. They don't want him to be the sole representative. It's, it's getting a little expensive to send just one person because while he is doing this, and while everyone loves him, they get a big crack out of this, again, Austrian prince who in his spare time is a photographer, it does all this like music production, has several pieces of art hanging in galleries, and just also skis at the Olympics. Uh, so they do decide it's not really worth the expense to send a solo uh, Olympian. Until 2006, when they send him as the sole representative of the Mexican delegation. Oh, and then they do it again in 2010. He has now been to six different Olympic Games, in all but one of them up to this point, as the sole representative of Mexico and the Mexican Ski Federation. Is he paying for himself? Because he's a German prince at this point. So like the vast majority of it, but there is like some amount of money that countries have to pay into the IOC to be in. Like there, there is a certain amount of cost that Mexico incurs. He covers essentially everything. Like the Mexican Ski Federation is pretty much his money. He does have to be a self-funded winter athlete. Luckily, again, as you said, German prince. But... We are not concerned about all that. We are concerned with the person that in 2015 doubles the size of the Mexican Ski Federation when she joins, and that is Sarah Schlepper. Sarah Schlepper's husband, Federico Gashida, is Mexican. Both of her children have Mexican citizenship for this reason, and she, in 2014, started applying to have her membership. She, she says even when she retired in 2011, in the back of her mind, she was kind of thinking about this, uh, similar in the same way that, that Prince Humbertus is. She's thinking about, oh man, what a great thing it would be to increase the visibility, just the possibility of people in that country to participate in winter sport. Like, why not make it more accessible? Why not show them that someone from there can do it? And uh, so in 2014, not in time for Sochi, but in time for 2015 World Championships, she begins and completes the process of getting a Mexican passport. 2015, the World Championship is her very first one. It's a big deal that they get her in in time for 2015 because the World Championship is held in Vail, Colorado. Vail, Colorado, her hometown, is basically the closest thing that the Mexican Ski Federation will ever have to a home game uh, because plenty of fans flock to come see Prince Hubertus. Uh, of course, many people there know Sarah Schlepper. It's very important that people know Sarah Schlepper because she works those connections. She also now is a self-funded Olympic athlete. Turns out it's pretty expensive to be a self-funded Olympic athlete. She estimates it was probably per year costing about $20,000. And she no longer has the coaching from USA skiing. She now has her brother Hunter when he's able to get off work in time to come be her coach. Basically, when she needs a technician, there is a guy, Clint. Could not get a last name for Clint, but I do know <laughs> that his first name's Clint. And Clint is the technician who's working totally pro bono, just because he's someone that has known her her entire life here in Vail, Colorado. So it's tough out there for the Mexican Ski Federation. And it is one thing, though, that everyone says when Sarah Schlepper joins is, well, they've doubled in size and they've more than doubled in talent. Because the good news is and Sarah Schlepper was already qualifying for the U.S. ski team. She's a much better skier than Prince Hubertus is. And so very quickly, she's finishing at 
some of the most respectable levels that Mexican skiing has ever seen in its relatively narrow existence. Uh, kind of long now at this point. It's existed for 30 years nearly, but it's all been the prince up until this point. As she starts to catch on, it continues to grow. Uh, you actually talked about one of his teammates, the Flagberry that year, the cross-country skier, uh, who everyone absolutely adored. Herman Madrazo, uh, who is that cross-country skier. We get Rodolfo Dixon. We get Roberto Franco. Again, there, several of them are like Mexican-Canadian or Mexican-American, but this is more people that have genuine Mexican ancestry rather than marrying into it and then further completing the citizenship. So it's inspiring some of that inner pride that people are getting. Uh, she like really is hardcore into, I want to promote Mexican skiing. She says, if my kids ever get into skiing, they will ski under this flag. Like This is now what she's all about, growing the sport in this country. And it is catching on. One reason that it catches on is that Prince Hubertus, even though he did compete in the 2014 Olympics and even qualified in 2018, but decided to not compete, he did still design the uniforms. I don't know if you all have ever seen the ski uniforms for the Mexican Ski Federation. They are very choice. For instance, recently they did a Sugar Skull Calavera look, kind of just all dotted along it. They had one year, a Pistolero Bandito. This is the uh, the uniform that that cross-country race is run in, where there's just kind of, you know, the old uh, Sancho Panza look on it, minus the actual poncho. The picture that I think mostly gets shared of Prince Hubertus is him in essentially a mariachi band uniform spandex suit. There's some with some really cool, like, Aztec-inspired ones. The ones that they wore in the 2022 Olympics, that are taking place now, have luchador masks all over them. So just some really phenomenal fashion choices by the prince designing it for this. The reason that I allude to those 2022 Olympics last time is that 2018 is not the only Mexican Olympic appearance for our good friend Sarah Schlepper. She did compete in the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics. She had classically competed only in slalom and giant slalom. She is now, in this later age, also added the Super G to her repertoire partially because there is not quite as much competition for qualification in the Super G. It's not quite as like classically prestigious as the slalom. But she finished in the mid-30s for both of those. That is the 30s out of like 49 for the Super G. But she finished 37 out of 82 total in 2022. That's upper half. And there's plenty of other people that finished below her. This is not one of those things where like she finished last of everyone that actually crossed the finish line. She is still a totally competent skier who, by dint of the fact that there is not anyone better in Mexico right now, will continue to be the best Mexican <laughs> skier in the world. When I first found out this, I was like a little bit worried that this was going to come off as a kind of like, oh, she's just using this to extend the career. I feel a lot better talking about Sarah Schlepper because the more you read about her, it is not, oh, I'm doing this so I can keep skiing. Like She was still skiing by evidence, I think, that she took three years off and then qualify for the world championships the next year. You know, even if she was kind of exploiting a loophole, you still got to qualify for the world championships in order to do that. It is exclusively about she wants to make Mexican skiing grow. Whether she will be a part of that going forward remains to be seen. She was very much speaking as though this is going to be her last Olympics. I know that's gotten it a little close where we've classically talked about people that are retired from the professional stage, but it is wonderful to see the already very, very silly history of the Mexican Ski Federation, but silly in that perfect international sport way, get continued by a still very fun and dramatic story, if now a little bit more 
taking itself seriously. Sarah Schlepper de Gachola. Yep, it is. Sorry, I'm sorry. And that is what it is announced, of course, for any time she is competing now under the Mexican banner. She does make sure to include the full surname of her her Mexican husband, and uh, she now has you know the, the two children with him. They are both named for skiers. Her youngest, her daughter, is nine-year-old Rezzy, named for a former teammate of hers, Rezzy Stiegler. And their son is named Las, and that's for Las Cus, who's just like an all-time great skier. Not someone that they had any personal relationship with, but just, you know. That's like if I were to name someone after Cal Ripken, essentially. And you know what? As I've already said tonight, I think that that would be a justified thing. I just want to know more about Prince Hubertus. I made sure to limit myself on him because it easily could have turned into 90 minutes of just talking about Prince Hubertus and, and he's his own episode. Like that's, that's the one day where we can't meet up at all. And I just need to talk into a microphone for an extended period of time. But, but today it, something about Sarah Schlepper's story hit me differently. Sorry. Sarah Schlepper. Sarah Himalaya. Andy Himalaya, the Royal disaster. But again, but a side note. With the story of Sarah Schlepper de Gashida, we've got three guys. That brings us to our business. I, I believe it's time for us to make some decisions. As, as I said for, for you, Diaz, I do love that you found a way to bring an all-time great that still had such mediocrity and, and obscurity for the credentials we were specifically talking about. You, you cover three whole countries and you find a way to reduce an all-time great to a guy, which, which takes a lot. So that's, that's a, a strong point in your favor. I do feel that our boy Alfredo is just a little too good. Um, I do think bonus points should be awarded for the fact that there are three countries. But no, the international career is just tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Um, I was gravitating more towards our girl Lindsay because... Like, to me, like, you know, you said it yourself in recapping, but, like, the silliness, right? At least with Sarah, there is very good reason why she is representing Mexico. With Lindsay Harding, they were just like, hey, you're, like, a couple countries over. You want to come over? Want to play some basketball? And the fact that, like, their government had to make that decision. You know what I mean? It wasn't like Belarus Basketball Federation was just, like, uh, I guess we can do this. Uh, we'll see if we can pull some strains. Like, no, this like had the backing of the Belarusian government. We're gonna make this woman with literally no tie to our region at all. Um, we're gonna make her the captain of our basketball team. It took three months for her to become a naturalized citizen of a country that, as far as I'm aware of, she had never stepped foot in before. That's, that's like significantly longer than it took Sarah Schlepper, who married a Mexican citizen. I mean, yeah, no, if, it's, if we're going by, like, what is the silliest? Ski uniforms aside, Harding's got the silliest. Let me, I'm, I'm Googling the ski outfits now. So this could sway my vote in real time. Oh, I, those are Hubertus's outfits, though. Oh, that's the, that's the, yeah, it is designed by Hubertus, and that's... As we discussed with Eddie Geidel, I think I sometimes have this problem of bringing guys that have so much of other guys in their story. So, hey, maybe that's what holds it against Sarah Schlepper. While the skulls I, are incredible. The skulls are absolutely incredible. The skulls are good. I mean, the mariachi that Hubertus has is still probably the best. But 
I, I do like Sarah Schlepper. I, did, where are you leaning, Xavier? Where are you leaning? I, I mean, I don't want to reha- rehash things because, you know, everything has been pointed out. But, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely still leaning Lindsay, Lindsay Harding because of the – couldn't quite get over the hump because of two all-time great women's basketball players and then a random country. Like, it'd be one thing if Turkey had called her because she played in Turkey. Belarus just was like, okay, we need a point guard. I bet you they probably called just a bunch of random people to be like, hey, you interested? And she was the one who said, sure. And then she competed in multiple tournaments just to qualify for the Olympics and got them there barely both times. Now, here's an important question. Does she actually play for the United States on an international level? So she she was in there the USA camps and played uh, like during like the the those like camp scrimmages. Uh, she never. Did she played. play another country in any capacity? Honestly, I don't know because you know a lot of those scrimmages. Uh, unless you're the USA men's ba- uh, dream team in '92 with the most famous scrimmage of all time, you know usually scrimmages are not are, are not public. But she was in camp with the U.S. She I don't. I, I will feel dirty if I try to win on a technicality. I'll I'll mm-hmm. feel too gross about myself if if that's how I'm going to try and make this happen. If if the committee is feeling Lindsey Harding, I like Lindsey Harding. I can I can absolutely be happy with that decision. Yes, I I, I do I do give my endorsement to Lindsey. Well, that's it's it's at least two to one, and I'm happy to th- this time I won't even be a stubborn holdout. I'll go ahead and toss my vote into the unanimity to the unanimity. Una- I don't unanimous know. nominee. The unanimous nominee. <laughs> unanimity. 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 There we go. Unanimity. Thank you, Xavier. That's. I'm. We'll see how much of that gets left in. No, I mean with that, I, Diaz. Once again, I I ask if you would care to do the honors. We are honored to welcome into the Hall of Guy the greatest women's Belarusian basketball player of all time from Mobile, Alabama, Lindsey Harding. Welcome. <laughs> I from Mobile to Belarus. What a story! What a from journey! Mobile to Minsk. Mobile from to Mobile, Minsk. from Mobile to Minsk to the Hall of Guy. It's it's been an odyssey. But congratulations, Lindsay Harding. We are proud to welcome you, uh, and we have been proud to welcome you, dear listener. Or we're proud that you welcomed us into your ears for this time here. Uh, do you fellows have anything else to to leave before we ski out a lot of these listeners' ears? Love the ski daddle pun, as, as we were just talking about skiers. Go Sixers, man. Do the damn thing. Go Sixers. Hey, con- congratulations to first-time All-Star Jonte Murray. Since he got the All-Star spot, I've committed in our fantasy basketball group chat to starting every single word with a capitalized letter, just like DeJounte Murray does in every single tweet and Instagram post. I will be doing that until the end of the NBA All-Star game. It has been a long week so far. All cap. All cap. Not all cap. Not all cap. First letter capitalized every day. He just capitalizes the first letter of every single word that he types. So if he typed like MacGyver, does the G get capitalized? You know what? The next time that DeJounte Murray types MacGyver, I will make a note of it and I will pass that along to you. I'm going to need a five alarm tweet from uh, from our official account when, when when we get the verdict here. And thank you so much, Diaz, for mentioning that. You can go ahead and follow that account at Remember Guys Pod. Uh, we we will get all these plaques finally up for our most recent spate of inductees. 
Xavier, anything else that you got while we while we mince words here? Um, nothing else for me, except for tomorrow is the 30th anniversary of one of the greatest sports-related episodes of television ever, uh, Homer at Bat from The Simpsons. Yeah, listen to the beautiful song Softball tomorrow. As I legitimately have on many car rides, I have that track burned on a couple different CDs. Go enjoy that right after you listen to this, because it is the anniversary today as you listen to it. And thanks so much for joining us. I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as retired Sixers play-by-play announcer Mark Zumoff would famously say, turning garbage into guy. <laughs> Catch you next week. Thank you.